this has been an interesting calendar year. If you're familiar with the, um, the ancient church practice of Lent, this year it began, it coincided with Valentine's Day. That's just what happened this year. In the same way, Easter today falls on April 1st, uh, which is everybody's least favorite holiday, April Fool's Day. And uh, being a pastor and operating under a tremendous amount of restraint, I've tried to reflect on how these two holidays can properly overlap without going for the low-hanging fruit. Um, You know, uh, an empty tomb with a just kidding above it or something like that, right? But what I want to do this morning is look at belief in the resurrection, look at this cornerstone of Christianity and just ask, is this foolishness? Because for us, the irony uh, as Christians may be on the empty tune, but for an atheist, for example, the irony is in the fact that it's April Fool's Day and we don't understand how foolish our own belief system is, that we actually believe that somebody really resurrected from the dead. The passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, is after the resurrection, and Jesus is walking down the road incognito, if you will, with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as he does so, he begins a conversation with them. Like I said, they don't recognize Jesus, and so he's just drawing out their thoughts on the past weekend. And as he does so, he answers this question in a way that I think is significant. If you would, look with me, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? He said to them, What things? And they said to them, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help each and every one here, Christian and non, to receive this mild rebuke from Jesus this morning. That there is a foolishness in not believing the resurrection. I pray, Lord, as we open your word this morning and as we read many different passages, uh, that the truths would sink in, not just into our doctrine or our dogma, not just into our belief system, but that it would seep into every muscle and fiber of our life, uh, Lord, and that we would live as if you were alive. We ask this in your name this morning, and we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in your name as well. Amen. So these two disciples, Cleopas and question mark, Uh, are walking down the road. Jesus draws out this conversation, and they lay out the facts of the weekend. We thought this man was the Messiah that the Old Testament had promised, and then our rulers and leaders, the Romans, took him and crucified him, and now we're hearing rumors that his body is missing, and some are saying that he's alive. 
And Jesus uses this opportunity to give them a six and a half mile sermon. It says here uh, that he speaks to them in verse 25 and he says, Foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. He says, how is it that this comes as a surprise to you? How is it that this caught you off guard? Isn't this what you should have been expecting? Now, honestly, if you read the Gospels closely, even Jesus himself is constantly referring to this future coming reality. Over the course of his ministry on multiple occasions, he says to those close to him, I'm headed to Jerusalem where I will be handed over to the Gentiles, crucified, and in three days I will rise again. But that's not where he puts that's not where he puts the weight here. He goes further back. He says, wasn't it necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, for some of us, the problem we have with the resurrection story is an ideological story. It has to do with a presupposition. It says death is a relatively permanent scenario and coming back from the dead just doesn't happen. You know, there was another group that Jesus talked to that had a similar belief system. They were known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were religious. In fact, they were Jewish. They received the first five books of the Old Testament, what's sometimes called the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. But they did not believe in a future resurrection state, a heaven and a hell, if you will. They didn't believe in some form of final judgment. They thought the idea was preposterous. And so on one occasion, they came to Jesus and they asked him, they said, Rabbi, we have a question for you. And they had developed a hypothetical that they thought would demonstrate the foolish belief in some sort of final resurrection. And this is how it went. They said, Rabbi, there was a man who married a woman, and before they had children, that man passed away. And as our law requires to raise up a child in the place of the firstborn who had died, his younger brother took her as a wife. But they had no children. And then another younger brother. But they had no children all the way down till in total she had had seven brothers as her husbands. And then they leaned in with a goofy smirk on their face and said, so in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? This is their hypothetical to trap Jesus. Right? They've presented this to go, how silly it is to believe in a future. It eradicates all the logic of life, is effectively what they say. And this is how Jesus responds. He says, you err not knowing the power of God nor the scriptures. You err not knowing the power of God nor the scriptures. He challenges them on two fronts. He says, first and foremost, are you really saying that this isn't possible? When the Bible is clear that all things are possible with God, can the God who created and gave life recreate and re-give life? Is it really that difficult? But he also says you also don't understand the scriptures. He effectively says, of course it's possible. But I want you to notice this morning that Jesus, to, this, to, to these two disciples walking on their way to Emmaus, doesn't just say the resurrection is possible. Listen to his words again. In verse 26, he says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He doesn't say, Isn't it possible? He says, It's a necessity. Didn't you know it must be this way? Now, if you're not familiar with the Gospel of Luke, that word necessary is the little Greek word day, and it is a favorite of Luke's. Okay? Sometimes it's translated should or necessary as it is here, or must, okay? And in Luke, he constantly puts it in the mouth of Jesus, and it reflects what theologians sometimes call the divine imperative. Jesus lived his life by the must. This word is so significant in Luke that it's used twice as much as any other gospel, and another 25 times in the book of Acts. Okay, so Luke uses this as an author more than any other New Testament author by far. Let me just give you some examples of how it plays out in the Gospel of Luke. You can turn with me if you like, but you don't need to worry about it. The first one we find in the very beginning of Jesus' story in Luke chapter 2. At this point, Luke is only, or, uh, Jesus is only a teenage child. He has traveled with his family to Jerusalem, and he has gotten left behind accidentally. So his parents come to him, freaking out, as parents would do, 
trying to travel between Nazareth and Jerusalem and realizing they were one child short. And they basically say, how could you do this to us? Right? They're freaking out. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 49 of chapter 2. He says, and it said to them, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? See that divine imperative? Didn't you know where I'd be? Didn't you know this is where I'd have to be? I must be here. Look at another occasion in chapter 4, verse 43. Here Jesus is preaching. The people are coming to him, and he gives reason for moving on. And this is what he says, verse 43. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus had an intention in his life. He had a drive. He had a purpose. He had an imperative, a must. Let's just look at one more before we return to chapter 22, this time in Luke chapter 9. Here, Jesus' message to his inner circle, the disciples, upgrades. He starts to tell them something new. This is what he says to them in verse 21. He strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Must. Must. Must It runs through the Gospel of Luke, and it climaxes here in Luke's final chapter, Luke 24, where he uses it three times, back-to-back, all in the same story. We've already looked at the first one. Let me draw your attention to the other two. Later in Luke chapter 24, in verse 44, here now he is talking to the twelve disciples, the ones that you probably know some of the names of, James and John and Peter. And he says something similar that he said to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so in verse 44, he said to them, revealing himself to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should, same word, suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now that one's especially important, because it doesn't just root the uh, salvic act of Jesus' death and resurrection in the scriptures, but also the following, carrying of that message to the end of the earth, and offering to the world both repentance and forgiveness. Jesus sees his whole life in light of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, let me help you with your chronology this morning. When Jesus lived, the Old Testament had been canonized, which means it had been collected and recognized, and no book had been added to it in 400 years. There's 400 years between the last page of Malachi and the first page of Matthew as we transition from Old Testament to New. And so it's striking not only that Jesus finds his personal significance in those stories, but also listen to what he says when he's speaking to the religious leaders in the Gospel of John. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. Dial it back a little bit. Put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees. Here's a man, homeless, itinerant preacher, in his 30s, a carpenter by trade. And he says, yeah, the Old Testament, I'm the main character. It's all about me. Listen to the profound statement that that is. And he maintains the same thing here. And he says, honestly, this whole weekend... My entire ministry, my entire life should not have come come to a surprise. You're foolish if you forget that it was all written before. He says it was prophesied. It was predicted. The prophets spoke of these things. Now, 
Here he's drawing on a point that is not a new point. God makes the claim in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah that prediction, prophecy, is one of the defining traits of the reality that he is the true God and there is no other. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43. Excuse me, Isaiah 46. For context here, all the way back beginning in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is contrasting the gods of the nations around Israel, the idols that Israel has fallen into worshiping, with the one true God. And so it's set up as a court case, and he calls for the worshipers of Baal or Ashtoreth or these other gods to bring forth evidence of the reality of those gods demonstrate their truth, and then in contrast, he presents his own case for why people can be uh, convinced that he is God. And when he comes to his climax here in chapter 46, he says in verse 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. God says, do you want to know that I am the real God, that I am the true God, that I am the living God? How about the fact that I have told you what will happen in advance? And I want to make one clarification this morning, because generally when we think of prediction, we think of rightly guessing the scores of the Super Bowl. What we're talking about here is slightly different, and this is what I mean. God doesn't just say, I know what's going to happen, and I'll prove it. He says, I'm going to bring about my plan. Do you hear the difference in those things? A fortune teller may be able to guess the future. God says, I've laid out a plan, and nothing will stop me from that plan. That's a little bit different, isn't it? And so Jesus is in good company here when he claims that God has foretold of his ministry. Now, the other thing that's striking about Jesus' words here to his disciples is that he doesn't just merely point to a single passage. He doesn't even just merely point to the prophets, these books at the end of the Old Testament, beginning with Isaiah and rolling through Malachi. He says the entire Old Testament, beginning with Moses. In fact, listen again to what he says to the twelve in verse Uh, verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, two things that I think should be striking to you about that this morning. The first is by adding the Psalms, he takes the hymnal of Israel and he says, even that prophetically points to my ministry. He takes the songs that Israel sings in worship the poems that were written right out of the heart and struggle of people like David. And he says, even that is prophetic. Even that is pointing forward to me. The second thing I want you to notice is that there's a trifold division he makes here, and it's the one that all the Jews understood. When he says the books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he basically says the whole by taking the three major categories they would have thought on, the writings, the prophets, and the Pentateuch. He says it's all about him. Now, what he does next in both of these places, I wish we were present for. Much more than me having the opportunity to give you a sermon this morning, I wish we could just lean in and through our time machine machine stethoscopes, listen into the sermon that Jesus gives here. Listen again to how it's described. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He just started to walk through, to point to all of it, to make it clear. Now, there's another point that's worth mentioning here. Not only do they have Jesus as teacher, but there's something miraculous that happens here as well. Notice when he's speaking to the 12 later, he says, it all must be fulfilled, verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There's a difference between those two passages. The first one, he opens the scriptures to them. Here, he does something to them personally. He opens their minds. 
Paul goes on later to say that for all the Jews, a veil lays before their reading of the Old Testament and that it's removed in Jesus Christ. That the scriptures can't be properly understood until you move and center around who Jesus is and that opens the scriptures, makes them understandable. And we see here that Jesus does that. God actually makes the same promise for us today. Paul says that the natural mind, the mind that we all have by birth, cannot comprehend the things of God. For that, we need a spiritual mind. And so even as we walk through some of these passages this morning, of which we're only going to look at a few, the evidence will be presented. The arguments will be made. But if you really want to know if Christianity is true, you have to seek God in the way that God requires to be sought. It says in the book of Hebrews, if anyone desires to know God, he must believe that he is and that he's a diligent rewarder of those who seek him. Here's what that looks like practically. The Bible says that God is not the one who is lost. The Bible says that we are lost and God, through Jesus Christ, has come to find us. That's a change in posture when we go about determining if God is there. We have to recognize our own inability and ask for help. Instead of coming to God and saying, prove your existence, we have to come to God and say, God, if I'm blind to this, please open my eyes. There's a difference there. I would encourage you this morning, if you're not a Christian, to take the humble and honest attitude and say, if these words are true, make them true to me. Open my eyes to understand the scriptures. And I promise you this, that God is more than willing to do so. As proven by Jesus right here. So let's look at these passages. For, for starters, because Jesus begins with Moses, I want to begin with Moses. And so turn all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis 3 is where everything goes wrong. What's happened so far in the story is that God has made everything there is to made, uh, make, he is including us as men and women. He's made us uniquely in his image, which gives us both dignity and purpose because an image's job is to reflect, to image. And he's given Adam and Eve a single command. Don't eat of this one tree. All of the garden that I've made for you is yours except for this one tree. And at this point, Eve and Adam have both eaten, and God is laying out the consequences. It's a passage of judgment. It's a passage of God's wrath. But in the midst of it is a promise. Everything goes wrong, and it goes wrong because of us. And God says, don't worry, I've got a plan, I'm going to fix this. And this is what it says in chapter 3, in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here. Remember the story, a serpent has uh, deceived Eve into eating. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, a cursory reading of that, if you don't keep reading the Bible, makes it sound like it's just an explanation for why we're not so fond of snakes, right? There's going to be a battle here. We, we're going to kill snakes, and they're going to bite us and poison us. I would argue, though, as you keep reading, that even Adam and Eve, even a few generations in Noah's father Lamech, they see more in this than merely a cautionary tale. What he's talking about here, remember, is not just a serpent, but the serpent. He's talking about the enemy, the person the Bible calls Satan, this fallen angel. That's where the battle actually rages. rages. And notice the climax. It says that the offspring of the woman shall, uh, that, his, uh, that he will crush the head of the serpent, despite the fact that the serpent will bruise his heel. Okay. Now, if you picture that with me this morning, it's pretty easy to recognize. It's a single act where it's both crushing the serpent and then taking the bite in the heel, right? Do you see that act? Now, it's relatively vague here, and there's a good reason for that. The Bible is progressive revelation. This is what I mean. 
that it's not a book that God just came to Adam and Eve and said, you're going to need some guidelines, so I've written you this book, and they hand it in, and hand it in totality. The Old Testament itself is written over the course of 4,000 years, okay, on two continents, by over 25 authors. Okay? It's full of time. It's progressively revealed. Here's what it's like, this prophetic pattern that we're talking about, this rolling out and this revealing of God's plan. It's like watching a person paint. And all we have here is the first few background brushstrokes. You look over the shoulder of the painter and you're like, I don't know what he's doing with this. But if you keep reading, as the prophecies pile up, suddenly some shadows are added and some outlines and you can see kind of a figure taking place and then the details come into view and by the time you get to the New Testament, there is a painting and it's a portrait. It's a picture of Jesus. But it begins right here. Now, the reason I say I know that the uh, characters of Genesis understood it in this way is because when Eve has a child named Cain, she goes, I have received a man, even the Lord. She says, this is it. Here's the promise. Now, she was wrong. Cain was a murderer. But even in his brother who he murders, we see this understanding because do you know what Abel's name means? It means vanity. I've already got the one I need. What's this one for? We see the same thing later in Noah's father, Lamech, when he has Noah and he says, here he is, the one who will give the world rest. But that's not what happens in Noah's life, is it? Instead, there's judgment, there's a flood. And so the waiting continues. Now, there are so many passages I could draw your attention to this morning. In fact, Jesus says that in some sense... Anywhere you turn, the Old Testament is going to be about him, and it's not rightly understood until you understand how it's about him. But this morning, I want to draw your attention to the passages primarily highlighted in the Gospels themselves, the places where Jesus articulates, here's where I'm talking about, here's your for further reading, where he footnotes his own life, okay? The first one I want to draw your attention to is Psalm 22, but notice how Jesus uses it. Now, if you're familiar with the crucifixion story, you know that while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he speaks a total of seven times. But the first one, he cries out and he says in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's not just making a statement of existential crisis, he's quoting He's quoting from the Psalms. He's quoting from Psalm 22. But even here in Luke's gospel, although he doesn't record that episode, he also points to Psalm 22 in the telling of his story. Back in Luke chapter 23, in verse 34, here Jesus is hanging on on the cross, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they, being the soldiers who crucified him, cast lots to divide his garments. Why does Luke bring up that detail? He brings up that detail because it is also a reference to Psalm 22. You see, when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, like often when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it uses a single verse to allude to an entire passage. Like I said, it's a for further reference. It's a CF in the footnotes of Jesus' crucifixion. So turn with me to Psalm 22. Now just for our timeline again, The Psalms, especially the ones like Psalm 22 and Psalm 16, which we'll look at as well this morning, were written uh, during the lifetime and the years following the lifetime of King David. Both 22 and 16 were actually penned by David. So that's a thousand years before the life of Christ. Let's read the psalm together. Beginning in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Now I want you to notice that that statement is one of contrast. 
The speaker in the psalm here says, everyone else was delivered. Where are you now? He continues, verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you who are he who took me from the womb and made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now I challenge you to go and read the crucifixion story in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and John, and read it through the lens of this psalm. And you will see all of the things that line up. Think of the profound statement, they have pierced my hands and feet, the psalmist says. Guys, crucifixion is not a form of capital punishment yet. It's brought about by the Persians 500 years after the reign of David. There's another weird thing about Psalm 22. There's no getting around the fact that this person who cries out is left to die. And then all of a sudden, look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The psalm shifts. Now, oftentimes, there are psalms of deliverance. God, help me. And then a second refrain, thank you for helping me. But when you read this one, the straits are more dire than that. It's not a close shave. But there's another passage that I want to look at this morning. Going back to the Gospel of Luke. This time in Luke chapter 22. Now here's why this passage is particularly significant. This is before the crucifixion. It's both the opening words that Jesus gives his disciples to explain what's about to happen and the ones Luke chooses to record to explain his perspective on what's about to happen. And so listen here in chapter 22, verse 37. For I tell you, that this scripture must, there's that word again, be fulfilled in me. And he quotes here, he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. He's just explained to them that he's going to be taken, arrested in the garden, betrayed by Judas. And they're freaking out about this, and he says, no, 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 restrain yourselves. This has to take place, because this scripture must be fulfilled and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now that comes from the prophet Isaiah. It comes specifically from Isaiah 53, and that's where I'd like to turn. As we looked at Psalm 22, we were a thousand years before the life of Christ. As we turn to Isaiah, we're 700 years before the life of Christ. As we looked at Psalm 22, we saw facts that lay out the circumstances, the happenings, the details of the crucifixion itself. We'll find some of that in Isaiah as well, but we also find the significance of the crucifixion. Psalm 22 on its own is just a tragedy and a mystery. A tragedy as God's child is abandoned and a mystery in that somehow it resolves. But in Isaiah, we get an explanation for what's actually happening. Beginning actually in chapter 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance 
his form beyond that of the children of man, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they've not heard they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as from uh, one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Notice what the prophet says there. He says, looking on, we said, man, God must hate him. He says, but it was really our sorrows, our grief. It was on our behalf that he bore these things. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Do you hear that statement? What is that statement? It's death, right? In fact, that word there for cut off is a technical term in Hebrew that means capital punishment. Okay, you die in your bed at home from sickness, you're not cut off. Cut off speaks of capital punishment. He was cut off from the land of the living. Why? Stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence, yet there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Do you see what it's saying here? It's saying this is all according to the plan. This is God's intention. Now this passage is so significantly clear on the crucifixion that during the Middle Ages, as Christians would try and convince, Jesus, or convince Jews that Jesus really was their Messiah, they went, that's been added by Christians. That's not really part of Isaiah. It didn't exist in the days of Jesus. It was created and grafted in to prove Christianity. And that argument continued until the 1950s when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And we found parts of Isaiah that predated the life of Jesus, including the entirety of this passage we just read. But the passage doesn't stop there. Here we have this horrible death in substitution for others, innocent, dying for the guilty, and then notice what it says in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he'll divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. What good is the booty when you're dead? Suddenly there's this rejoicing and applauding and victory coming out of this terrible death. Now do you understand why Jesus says according to the scriptures the Messiah must die and he must be resurrected and salvation will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth? Jesus isn't presenting something new or novel. He's saying, as it was written. I want to look with you at one more passage this morning. Now, side note, Isaiah 53 is significantly important to the early church. When you read the New Testament, they constantly, like the gospel authors, point to this. When Philip is running down a road alongside a chariot, inside is an Ethiopian eunuch reading the scroll of Isaiah... And Philip is running, and he says, do you understand what you read? And he says, well, I need someone's help. And the, pro, or the eunuch reads, he reads from Isaiah 53, and he says, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? 
And it says in Acts chapter 8, beginning with this scripture, he explained to him Jesus. You can see it throughout the epistles that Paul and Peter and James write references to Isaiah 53, references to Psalm 22. But there's another one. For this, I want to turn to the very first Christian sermon, the very first post-resurrection sermon we have recorded for us. Jesus is left without us being able to tune in, but Peter's on the day of Pentecost is still available to us. Look at Acts chapter 2. Let me set the scene. This is happening during the day of Pentecost. That follows the Passover festival by 50 days. That's why we call it Pentecost, penta meaning 50. Okay? It's also the second required for all Jewish males over the age of 13 pilgrimage festivals. So all the Jews come in for Passover during the crucifixion. They leave. They come back for Pentecost. And this is when the Holy Spirit falls as Jesus promised it would and the church is filled with the Spirit and they run out into the streets and in languages they do not know, they proclaim the works of God. And all of these pilgrims from all over the world who are religiously and ethnically Jews but linguistically and culturally from all over the world hear God being praised in their own language. And Peter stands up to explain this phenomenon and he gives this sermon And what I want to draw your attention to is near the end of the sermon. When he gets to Jesus, he starts with what's happening there, the phenomenon there. And guess what? He says, this is what was written by the prophet Joel. He says, to understand this, you have to read that. But then he says this in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it because David says concerning him. Do you hear the logic there? Why was the resurrection obvious? Why did it have to happen? Why was it not possible for Jesus to remain dead? Because David said, and he again quotes from the Psalms, this time from Psalm 16. Listen to his quotation here. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, it's used Hades here. If you remember your Greek mythology, that's the abode of the dead. That's a Greek translation of this Hebrew idea of Sheol, which is effectively the same thing. You will not leave me in the place of the dead, he says, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Listen to Peter's commentary here in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He says, let me let you in on an obvious statement. David, the author of this psalm, is dead. And so when David says here, you will not let me Leave me abandoned in the place of death, nor will you let your holy one, which is a way of saying anointed one, which could apply to David as king, but is also where we get the Hebrew word Messiah. You will not let your anointed one see corruption. He says, look, David, who wrote this psalm, he's dead. And he says his tomb is still with us, and I've been to the place of that tomb. Okay, We know that it stood in the days where Peter stands and preaches this sermon He may even be pointing down the road to where this is housed. He's making an obvious point here, and listen to what he says. He says, verse 30, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Now, he doesn't quote here, but he alludes to another prophetic passage. This one in the book of Samuel, where God comes to David and he says, you thought you were going to build me a house, a temple, but I'm going to build you a house and one of your descendants will reign forever. 
So he puts these two pieces of things together. He says, David, knowing that God had promised that one of his descendants prophetically speaks with his own mouth of his direct descendant. And this is what he says in verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. How did Peter learn this hermeneutical, this biblical interpretive maneuver? In Luke chapter 24, as Jesus walked him through these passages and connected the dots. There is many significant aspects, features, byproducts, fruits of the resurrection story. The one I want to draw your attention to this morning is one we don't often talk about, and that's the faithfulness of God. The resurrection is a demonstration that God keeps his promises. It's evidence that he did what he said he would do. And it's such a profound evidence that we can therefore entrust ourselves to all of his other promises. That's why the New Testament says that every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. It's what makes our hope steadfast. When Jesus says to his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you, how can we trust that that's true? Because Jesus is alive. When Paul says, nothing will separate us from the, de- uh, from the love of God, neither death nor life nor powers or principalities nor any created thing, how do we know that's true? Because it's been proven true in Jesus Christ. Listen, this is significant. If Jesus is not alive, Paul just gets really frank in 1 Corinthians 15 and he says, then Christians are just people to be pitied because they're leaning their entire life on a falsehood. But if Jesus is alive, everything you know is wrong. It doesn't merely inform which religion is true. It informs your daily choices. It recalibrates your perspective on life. It changes your view of God significantly because another thing that the resurrection of Christ demonstrates is his indefatigable love. The resurrection is the culmination of what Jesus proclaims on the cross when he says it's finished, paid in full. If that's true, what happens on the cross, the resurrection is the receipt of that purchase. It's the demonstration of those things. It's the confidence we have as Christians when we stand before God and we say, clearly I am not righteous, but you have clothed me in the righteousness of your son. But there's another thing that the Bible points to as being significantly demonstrated by this resurrection. Not here in Acts chapter 2, but later in the book of Acts. Paul is talking to some Athenians, some Greek philosophers, some Stoics, and some Epicureans. He's explaining to them the teaching of Christianity and he says that God has appointed one man to judge the world and he has proven this appointment by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ ties directly to that resurrection that the Sadducees were so skeptical about. How do we know that all who are dead will live and stand before the living God and give an account for their lives? Because Jesus has been resurrected. And he says, I'm coming back. And when I do, once again, pointing to the book of Daniel, he says, there will be a judgment. All of those things hinge on the resurrection. And all of them are pre-recorded, predicted, and prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of of the promises and predictions that God made in the Old Testament. That's why for us as Christians, we don't just sit in the New Testament and go, oh, the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. It's irrelevant. That was a Jewish book. We have, that's why we don't think that Christianity began in the first century. You could say that it came to its significant fulfillment in the first century, but it begins in Genesis with our first parents, Adam and Eve. 
And God says, I've got a plan. I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to help you understand it. I'm going to create a sacrificial system and a tabernacle to paint the picture of why it's necessary. I'm going to set up pictures, living pictures in history so that you will understand. I'm going to send Joseph into Egypt and his life is going to paint a parable of what I'm eventually going to do. I'm going to leave you out of Egypt in the Exodus and that's really going to find its real significance as a man in Jerusalem dies on a cross. And God is faithful. And just as he said, so he has done. Let's pray. God, for those of us who are Christians this morning, forgive us for our foolishness. We may believe and receive this teaching, but oftentimes, pragmatically and practically, when we make our basic choices, when we entertain our basic fears, when we invest in our life, when we answer the question, what am I doing? Where am I going? We neglect this great reality. We forget the fulfillment of 4,000 years of God's proclamation of what he was going to do as it was brought to its total and perfected fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would aliven our hearts again. Make us sensitive again to the life of the resurrection. I pray, Lord, that as we read the promises contained in the New Testament, ones that pertain to your presence, to our empowerment, to the fruitfulness of whatever ministry you call us to, that we will remember that we have a steadfast hope because Jesus is alive. Thank you, God, that you didn't give us a plan of salvation. You gave us a person. You gave us yourself. And for those who are not Christians this morning, Father, I pray that you would bring conviction to their heart that these are things worth investigating. I pray that they'd be like the Bereans who also doubted these things in the book of Acts, but searched the scriptures to see if these things are so. And I thank you, Lord, that this isn't just a record of your word, but that your Bible, your word, is living and powerful and capable of penetrating to the very heart, rendering the difference between soul and flesh. And I ask, God, that you would do that good work. And I ask, God, that as we celebrate your resurrection today, we would celebrate it not merely with gratitude, but with hope. You are so faithful. Even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. You have given us, as Peter says, great and precious promises. And Paul reminds us that each and every one of them is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let it be so in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.